Lord, we come to you today asking for your help, for wisdom and understanding for this text and this book in particular. We ask, Lord, that um, there would be clarity of understanding so that we can seek to apply what it is that you are revealing to us, to our lives, in such a way, Lord, that it would glorify you. And Lord, allow me as your messenger to reflect the truths of this text to the hearers here today, that we would, we would embrace them, that we would be hungry for them. So Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Let me just frame uh, what's going on here just uh, for all of us to kind of pick up again on what's happening in the book of Job. Uh, we have just read the speech of Bildad, one of Job's friends. Job had three friends. Um, the first one we saw was Eliphaz. There's Bildad and there's Zophar. Each of them gives speeches to Job uh, as Job now sits in the ash heap and he's mourning the, the suffering that he is presently experiencing, covered in sores. He's lost all his possessions. He's lost all his children. His wife has told him to curse God and die. And uh, he, is, he has lamented, and he's already responded to Eliphaz. And so uh, we come now to uh, this, this speech of Bildad. And I have to just make sure there's a qualifier here that at the end of the book, God turns to the friends of Job and says, you have not spoken rightly. And so although there are things that are said in this speech that sound good, that sound right, we must approach it with a lens of understanding that what is being revealed here is not necessarily holy and truly acceptable before the Lord. So part of our job is to filter through that. Part of our job then is to consider what it is that God wants us to learn from what it is that Bildad is saying. So Job ends up being a little bit more of a difficult book in that sense. Because as, as, you know, as Beth was reading, there's some things that are said here. It's like, oh yeah, that's true, that's good. And, and yet what he's saying is not truly ultimately helpful. And so this morning I want to begin, though, I want to just, just tell you a little bit about uh, a number of years ago, something that happened in the church that I was pastoring. A young man, a high school senior, was driving his brand new sports car, a graduation present from his parents, and he was driving it along one of the more obscure roads in the East Bay, and he was uh, going at speeds exceeding 110 miles per hour, and as a result, the car uh, flew off the road, literally, and crashed, and he and the female friend that was with him died. And the police reports you know, concluded that he must have hit a bump at that speed in the road, and the kind of car it was was very low profile, and it just caught some wind and literally flew off the road because there was no traction to keep it on the road. And it was shocking news. It was, it was tragic news for the, the families involved, the church, of course, and for the Castro Valley community. But that shock also turned to anger. Um, anger at the parents. What kind of parents would buy such a vehicle for their son? Were they not responsible for such an irresponsible 
decision that resulted in his death. Anger at the young man. What kind of friend is it that would endanger the life of another, especially a young girl? And then anger at God. How could you take such a young and innocent life away at such an early age? And I'm not saying that people went around in public saying these things, but these are the things that were being talked about as people wrestled with what was going on. I happened to be the pastor of the church that this family was a part of, and, and I remember meeting with my staff uh, you know, the, as soon as we found out about it and, and thinking through what the implications were and hearing uh, the, these kind of words of anger that they were reporting that other people were saying and even they were struggling with. And, you know, I had to remind them that although determining the responsibility for the death of these two young teens was important, what happened was first and foremost a tragedy. Two young lives have been ripped from their families and friends in an untimely and shocking manner, and that our goal as pastors was to minister to them, the family, in their tragedy, and not to point fingers at responsibility. There would, there would be opportunity for that. There'd be opportunity for those parents to think through choices that they made in God's timing and in God's way. Now, certainly, the young man was responsible and his foolish actions resulted in both his death and the death of his female friend. The parents knew that. <laughs> they didn't, no one had to tell them that. They knew that. They understood the heartache that their son had caused another family. But although that one act of foolishness will be remembered by many when his name is mentioned, his life was not bound up in that one act of foolishness. He was still a beloved son. He was still a young man loved by many. He was still a friend. In whatever way you look at it, this was still a tragedy. And friends, it's a reminder to us to be sure that we have our theology settled when suffering comes upon us or comes upon those we love. And that's why when Helen told me what Glenn said um, you know, last night in his message to me, it just reminded me of how beautiful sound theology is in the midst of suffering. You see, it's possible and it's tempting to allow our theology, whether it's good or bad, to get in the way of our ministry. In times of suffering, because of, of what we're going through, the ministry of the word and the reflection of solid theology applied without care and, and without wisdom can cause great damage. And so today, as we look at Job's second friend, Bildad, I want to talk to you about when your application of theology gets in the way of your desire to minister. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, this will be a negative example that is an appeal to us that our solid theology applied rightly at the right time in the right way, especially uh, when we're ministering to those that are suffering, is of critical importance. And we'll see this proposition illustrated for us in the negative. We're going to see Bildad's theology 
was not solid, and he was not sensitive to apply his theology in a helpful or thoughtful manner. So Bildad's speech, then, is a lesson for us to not allow our theology to get in the way of our ministry to others as they suffer in their despair. Now, what is Bildad's theology? That's an important question. We need to lay that out on the front end here. What is his understanding of how God works and what are his expectations? What are his ways? For Bildad, he had a strict allegiance to what we would call the doctrine of retribution. In other words, whatever a man sows, that will he reap. Now, have you heard that in Scripture somewhere? Yeah. But let's tease it out a little bit more. In other words, he would embrace that you sow goodness, you'll reap blessing. You sow wickedness, you will reap punishment. Or to put it differently, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to sinful people. It is an intellectual theology that is logical and empty of emotions. You press a button and out will come the result. You do something good, it will result in blessing. You do something bad, it will result in punishment. It's that simple. And so what we find happening in Bildad's speech is a friend who can only see life through his own theological lens and he places Job in that theological system and understanding without any care for Job in the moment of his suffering, in the moment of his grieving, in the moment of his confusion. And so because he's so convinced of Job's guilt and of Job's sin, Bildad speaks past Job and ultimately causes more hurt than the help that he's trying to be to his friend. Now, what does it mean to speak past others? We speak past others when we're more concerned that our system of thinking is made clear without consideration of the person in front of us. In other words, we've already made up our mind about what has happened, who is responsible, and what needs to be done, that we stop listening, we stop considering the struggle and the suffering that the person in front of us is going through. And so we barrel onward, pressing home our conclusion and system of belief. Friends, is a warning to us, that can be done with both sound theology as well as distorted or unhealthy theology. So get this. We as God's people may have truth on our side, but we may fail to apply that truth with wisdom and care, in particular to people who are going through suffering. In other words, what we might say is true, but this is not the time to say it. Okay? So what we find here is Bildad barreling ahead with his doctrine of retribution. So let's jump now into the text. And we're beginning now uh, at verse 2 and verses 2 through 7. I'm calling an insensitive accusation. And here is how it begins. How long will you say these things? This is Bildad speaking to Job. And the words of your mouth be a great wind. 
Now, Bildad's use of how long is in response to his offense at what Job had said about God in his speech after Eliphaz has spoken. At the end of that speech, Job is saying, how long? How long? And he's speaking to God. How long will I have to go through this suffering? So he's using Job's words and turning them back on Job. And the expression, great wind, is not necessarily seeking to say that, that Job's words have been empty, but rather that they have been a heavy assault on the character of God. It is true that when Job responded to the speech of Eliphaz, that he had not held back his complaint at the many arrows of the Almighty, if you remember. It's true that he is so overwhelmed that he simply wants to be left alone to die. So Bildad is right to some degree, but he is just focusing on the words of Job and not on the heart of Job. He's playing whack-a-mole with Job's words and is now holding them against him. Now, friends, that's the, that's the first thing you want to see, that Job, you are full of wind. But not only that, Job, you don't understand God. Look at verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? In other words, the suffering you've experienced, Job, is all part of God's justice. If you were a blameless man, you would not be in this situation. <laughs> but what you don't get is that God is right to bring punishment on you. Does God pervert justice? Well, how could you even think that? He cannot. He won't. It would go against his character to do so. The ideas of God and injustice are mutually incompatible. So to Bildad, Job's continual protest of innocence and ongoing complaint of God's harsh treatment of him have charged God with injustice. He's saying, Job, you are claiming that God is unjust. But we need to be reminded of what both God and the narrator of the story three times say in the introduction of this book, that Job was a blameless man in God's eyes. I mean, that's part of the purpose of the first section of the book, is to establish the character of this man Job. And if Job is blameless then Bildad is not seeing things correctly. To Bildad, that couldn't be possible because Job is suffering, and people who suffer must have done something to deserve that suffering. So to Bildad, the righteous receive blessing and the wicked will be punished. That is the way it is. That is his theology. And Bildad is a little shaken because he sees his theology in danger. What he fails to see is that Job, his friend, is in danger. Now, friends, it's helpful then for us to be reminded that having right theology is essential to our relationship to God. It's essential for our relationship with one another. 
It's essential for our, our relationship with the ups and downs of our life. We need good, solid theology, understanding of who God is and what he's doing and how he does it. We need that. But at the same time, we must be careful not to wield our theology as a weapon, especially during times of suffering. To do so may result in deep hurt rather than welcome help. And that's why we're called to minister the word. What's the idea of ministering the word? You minister the word when you come alongside people and you, you, you minister and you, you help those who are hurting with words of healing that comes from the word. Now, certainly there are times when the word of God must be used to bring confrontation, but even that is not to be done in an angry, pugnacious spirit. We are called to minister the word. We're not to beat them down. We're to build people up. Now, it's true, unfortunately, that when suffering and struggle rears its ugly head, that our true beliefs and our theology end up being on display for people to see. And godly people will identify those shortcomings, but they will also be patient with their friends during the storm rather than simply beat them down if they say something that's not theologically accurate. Be careful that you don't fight for right theology at the wrong time and lose the confidence of your friend. A right theology must be applied at the right time. That, friends, is wisdom. Now, you think that was bad enough. Job, you're full of wind. Job, you don't understand. But now he goes on to attack Job's children. Look at verse 4. If your children have sinned against him, God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now, it's clear from the context that Bildad isn't saying if. He really is saying since. In other words, he is charging Job's children, saying, Job, your children sinned, and they are now dead. They got what they deserved. Your children are only reaping what they sowed. Now, friends, there are some things you should never say to a parent at the funeral of one of their children. And this is certainly one of them. And let's just imagine that it was true. That's not the time and place to deal with those issues. That's caring, that's gentleness, that's love. That's not saying I'm shirking the responsibility of God's word speaking to the life of those people, but there's a timing issue going on here. When someone is in the midst of grief, you don't blout out that kind of stuff. You minister to them carefully. But again, we know what Job was like with his children, don't we? Again, the, the beginning of the book just lays out for us his heart for his children, how he made sure after a day of feasting and celebration that he and his children would go before the Lord and offer a sacrifice to be sure that they were in a right standing before him. Do you see how the beginning of this book is laying out facts and information that help us understand what is going on in these speeches? Job loved his children. He cared for his children. He doted on his children, but he wanted to make sure that they were in a right standing with God, and he did that through sacrifice. But that wasn't good enough for Bildad. 
His theological system wouldn't allow it. Job's children suffered because they deserved it. They must have done something bad. And the doctrine of retribution is so fundamental to Bildad's worldview that he can only perceive that the death of Job's sons and daughters as God's punishment. Now, to be fair to Bildad, he probably does not think that that's anything new. He likely assumes that Job himself will have drawn the same conclusions, but what Bildad and his other two friends are blind to is the possibility of forgiveness and the validity of temporary cleansing that comes through sacrifice. In other words, if you do something that is sinful, there is the possibility of forgiveness. If you do something sinful, there is a valid sacrifice that brings you back into right relationship with God. That's what they fail to understand. All they can see is the black and white of righteousness and wickedness, blessing and the corresponding punishment. And we must learn that even general truths must be applied with care. It is true that the way of the righteous is a road that leads to blessing. I would preach that, you would say that. It is true that the way of the wicked is a road that leads to destruction. Those distinctions are biblical. They're right, but they're, and they're true, but they must be fashioned by the gospel implications of grace, forgiveness, and ultimate once-for-all sacrifice. Now, here it is, friends. If they are not, we are all doomed. For there is none righteous, no, not one. We all fall short of God's standard, and we're all without hope. And so these general principles may be out there, but it is the grace of God that comes and fashions them by virtue of God's wisdom, his character, and his purposes in our lives. So Job, you don't understand God. You're children of sin. But here's now why he's even bringing up the children. He's saying, Job, you still have a future. If you seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, verse 5, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And through your, though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. So he's saying, but Job, even though your children were sinful and gone, there's still hope for you. The word you is emphatic in both verses 5 and 6. And they stress the difference between Job and his children. The fact that you're breathing, Job, means that whatever you have done was not so severe that it will bring about your death. So there's hope for you. Unlike your children, they died because they were sinful. You're still here, so there's hope for you. And so he brings about two conditions for God's favor. And here are the two conditions. Prayer, if you seek him and plead with him for mercy. And then secondly, moral purity, if you are pure and upright. So if you do seek him out in prayer, he is merciful. If you live in purity and right behavior, surely God will rouse himself for you and restore your life. But this time, when he does that, he will give you far more than what he has already blessed you with or given you. Now, just, just think about the picture here. Job was already presented as 
the, the, the one who was prosperous par excellence, right? I mean, he was the guy. So what was small and what he is saying yet is going to be even greater was quite the promise, was quite the statement. So if you're sinful, you can't help but reap the punishment that you sow. But if you respond with prayer and morality, you put God in chains and you compel him to respond with favor to your human merit. Notice that Bildad's view of God's favor is rooted in earthly terms, a rightful habitation, a home. His latter days will be great. In other words, he'll be prosperous again. What's lacking here is any reference to the blessing of being in right standing with God. He simply focuses on God's rousing and restoration of his earthly circumstances. There's no grace, there's no forgiveness, there's no reconciliation with God. Pray, live a moral life. God will bless you. That's what he's saying. And friends, there's something very subtle and very wrong about what is being said here, isn't there? What we're reading sounds very much like what we call the prosperity gospel that is plaguing the church today. It says the reason that you are suffering is because of some sin in your life. You've probably heard this before. It says that if you identify that sin, if you confess that sin, if you seek God and live morally and purely before God, God will restore you from your disease, from your distress, from your financial ruin. Check off a list of these religious requirements and it will result in physical earthly blessing. So if you're in a place of distress, the bottom has fallen out and you have nowhere to turn, seek God, live a morally pure life, and he will bless you on this earth with so much more than you have ever had. And friends, there are half-truths in statements like that. We should seek God. We should be seeking to live a moral and pure life. But friends, I and any pastor worth his salt must be careful that he speaks truthfully and clearly because there's a huge difference between gospel-centered blessing and hope and between a prosperity-centered blessing and hope. Let me put it this way. If you are in a place of distress, the bottom has fallen out and you have nowhere to turn, seek God and his forgiveness and you will find blessing and comfort in being in right fellowship with God. There is nothing more important than that. And when you are restored, he will renew your mind. He will give you help and guidance through his word about how you are to live in this world, but Jesus is your greatest blessing and heaven your ultimate hope. When we relegate the blessings that come by virtue of gospel life and salvation to earthly um, prosperity, we are missing the point. We sing the song, all I have is Christ." Because he's our greatest joy. So to say to someone who has been born with blindness or deafness or a club foot or some other form of disease that the reason you're suffering and the reason you're not getting well is because of some sin in your life or some sin that your parents committed or that you just don't have enough faith. Friends, that is a sickening cruelty. 
And it violates scripture, it violates the gospel, and it violates the character of God. Bildad may not have intended such insensitivity. He may have meant well, but in the end his words are cruel and a distortion of the teachings of scripture. Let me just kind of step back and just think through you. Someone is going to the hospital. They found out they have some special disease and someone from the prosperity world or someone who has been influenced or embraced that kind of thinking contacts you and says, I know that God will bring you through this. He told me that. Have you heard any language like that? Well, it's positive thinking. God will do this. I know he will. But what if he doesn't? Is that because of me? Is that because of my sin? Is it because of my lack of faith? Or is it, it's a distorted view of how God works in this world. Now we pray for healing. We pray for his will. We pray for, for God and his providence and care to bring out a blessing. But he's God. He can choose to do whatever he desires for his own glory. So we have an insensitive accusation. Aren't you glad Bildad isn't talking to you? And we have an unwavering tradition. Just like Eliphaz appealed to God's holiness and leaned on the experiences of a dream for his authority, now Bildad appeals to God's justice and leans on the years of tradition as his authority. Bildad's theology and philosophy is rooted in the past. Now, friends, the past isn't bad. It's good to learn from the past. We're all standing on the shoulders of men and women who had to wrestle with the texts of Scripture to determine what the gospel is and how the church should function. Some of my greatest spiritual heroes are dead. They have a lot to say, but we must always remember that the past must be a rudder to guide us, but not an anchor to hold us back. And when we are locked into the past, we find ourselves guilty of traditionalism. Someone has rightly said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Why we do such things? Traditionalism. It's lacking faith. We just do the tradition over time. This is what the past they, they did in the past. This is why we're doing it now. So Bildad is not appealing here to the scriptures when he is speaking of bygone ages. Look at verse 2. He says, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. Verse 10. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So he's not appealing to the scriptures but of the wisdom of the fathers of bygone ages. But the simple fact that something was said or written in the past is not a guarantee that it's right. Just because something is old doesn't make it sounder. Just because something is new doesn't mean it's superior. So who are these fathers of bygone years? This is not a reference to biblical characters but to the wisdom of mankind handed down through the ages. 
It's the kind of wisdom that you will see in all sorts of man-made religion or man-made ideology, and it's certainly the kind of thing that crops up in the context even of the church. And what is it that these fathers of bygone years have taught? Well, it's the doctrine of retribution, that those who walk in obedience before their God, whoever that might be, will be blessed. Those who walk in wickedness before their God will be punished. And we see these evidences in today's religions and cultures. You ever heard the expression, hey, what goes around what? What do you think that is? Or it's simply your karma. Or the yin and the yang. This is very much central in the teaching of Islam. And friends, sadly, it's much a part of the belief system of shallow Christianity. So Job, the wisdom of the fathers of bygone years is screaming at you is what Bildad is saying. You and I, Job, our lives are but a shadow. We have nothing new to contribute. So we should listen to the evidence that they have given us, truths that have lasted through the years. Look at the evidence. Look all around you and stop claiming your innocence. Stopping full of hot air that you're like a great wind. You're not responding to your suffering in a right way with such protests. If you will listen, you will see that what I'm saying is exactly what tradition has always said. Now, friends, it is important then for us to realize that there are two kinds of wisdom in this world that are at odds with each other. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And I think it's purposeful that the first psalm of all the psalms lays that out for us. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight will be in the law of the Lord, and his law he'll meditate day and night. His leaf also will not wither, but whatever he does will prosper. The wicked are not so, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. There's these two paths, two wisdoms that are constantly at odds with each other. The wisdom of the world will present itself as sophisticated, superior, and liberating, promising freedom to live and to act and to choose how you want to live. James calls it earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And there's the wisdom of God, and it will present itself as honest, truthful, and selfless. It, promote, it promises freedom, but it's a freedom that comes via a sacrifice. And James calls this wisdom pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Friends, there are two wisdoms to follow and two ways to live. The way of the world is fueled by the wisdom of the world, and that leads to eternal death. The wisdom, uh, the way of the Lord is fueled by the wisdom of God, and that leads to life everlasting. And Bildad's theology is rooted in this unwavering tradition 
Third, there's a, a misplaced illustration. Bildad now wants to press this home on, on Job, and so he's going to use three illustrations, and these illustrations are there to warn Job to, to, to kind of wake up out of his determined posture to claim his innocence. And these are all illustrations about what happens to the ungodly, how the ungodly live. First of all, we have a papyrus, a papyrus. Verse 11, can, a, can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. So a papyrus is a, is a plant that grows in, in a marsh, in water, and it grows up to heights of 10 to 15 feet, and it, and it has a beautiful flower. But when the water dries up, it will quickly wither away even though it was full of vigor and in full bloom. And in particular, as, as the, the writer says, and it had not been cut down. In other words, the emphasis here is this rapid withering, this sudden reversal of fortune. See, Job, your life is just like a papyrus plant that grows up fast, blooms, and is a beautiful flower. You started well. You had a beautiful quiver of a family you had wealth of possessions. You were respected by all, but you failed and you failed to finish the race. The New Testament equivalent, of course, out of the lips of Jesus is the word that fell on rocky ground, springs up quickly, but has no depths in its roots, and therefore it dies. So Job, you cannot be sure of your right standing with God if you keep claiming your Innocence. Now here comes the warning to Job, verse 13. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. Now the idea of forgetting here is not, I mean, a, a lapse of memory. It's talking about a determined behavior that opposes God or acts as if there is no God or, or that God is not present or that God will not act on their behalf. And so Bildad is saying to Job, he's warning Job that his persistence of innocence in this godless path, or is the godless path, of one who will eventually forget God. Secondly, a spider's web. Now there's two creatures in God's creation that I do not like. And you can join with me in this. The first creature is a snake. Do not like snakes. Now I'm not like running away in panic. Um, because that would be unmanly. Although inside, I would feel like doing that, right? But I don't like snakes. And I don't like spiders. And again, I don't panic over that. I'm usually the one that has to kill them in our house, right? From a distance, throwing shoes. How many times, right? But, I, you know, we don't like. But one of the things that's beautiful about spiders is the spider's web. It is an incredible part of God's creation, isn't it? Now, of course, I don't enjoy, you know, running blindly around a corner and then suddenly being hit by spider's webs. We don't like that. But when we stop and you look at them and, and, and what it takes to make them, we marvel at them. And so here is the spider's web that's being used. Look at verse 14, and we'll read all the way through verse 15. His confidence is severed, talking here about the ungodly, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. The spider's house is his web. So let's just kind of get the parallelism that's going on here. He's saying a spider's web is strong. 
and designed to, to catch small creatures, but it's strong in proportion to the spider, not in proportion to the godless. So whatever confidence the godless feel must rest on a spider's web. So if the godless rest their confidence on their own ideas rather than on God, they will find that spider's web to be unreliable. So Job, if you continue to lean on your profession of innocence before God, it is like you leaning on a spider's web. It is a self-made confidence that is unreliable and will ultimately fail. It will not stand. It will not endure. This is what the ungodly do. And Job, you're doing the same thing. Next is a plant or a tree. We have an image presented of us of a plant or a tree that flourishes only to be uprooted and disowned. He's a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. So when a plant or a tree grows near a house, its roots grow deep, its roots wrap around the stones, whatever is there in its way, uses it as its source of strength. It appears healthy, it appears strong, but when it's cut down and it dies, so do the roots. And there is, in time, no evidence that the plant or vine even existed. Even the garden in which it existed will say, I had never seen you. This is the way of the ungodly. This is the joy of his way, we're told in verse 19. And out of the soil will, uh, others will spring. The garden which the, the ungodly has grown, flourished, and been destroyed will not only forget the ungodly, but the ungodly will be fresh soil for the saplings of new plants or trees to rise up. The godless person's fate is to be exterminated. He will be forgotten by what is dear and meaningful to him. It will forget that it has forgotten him. Job, I want to warn you, something has happened to your root system. And if you persist down this path, you will be exterminated and all of your legacy will be gone. You will be forgotten. So Job, don't be that man. Change your tune. Acknowledge the sin that has caused your suffering. Now, you, you, can, you can just hear that Bill Dad really believes what he's saying, right? He believes in this doctrine of retribution. These illustrations are pressing the point. Job, stop persisting in claiming you're innocent. (laughs) I don't want you to be destroyed. We're not going to turn there, but maybe later today you'll just look at chapters 9 and 10 and how many times Job says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, and respond to this. The misplaced illustration, which brings us now to a distorted conclusion. He's been, Bildad has been presenting images of the fate of the wicked as a warning to Job, but now Bildad adds a scene depicting the fate of the innocent. 
We've seen the negative side of the doctrine of retribution. Now we're seeing the positive side of this doctrine of retribution. And there, first of all, is a general principle. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. If you're blameless, he will bless you. If you're evil, he will punish you. So there's two assertions made in this general principle. First of all, that mankind is made up of two kinds of people. Right? Blameless and the evildoers. Secondly, that God himself who ins- will in- ensure that each group gets its just deserts. It's just the way it is. God is up there making sure that those who are, who are obedient will receive the blessing and those who are disobedient will receive the punishment. He'll make sure it happens. He is the one who doesn't pervert what is right. He is faithfully carrying out justice. So we move from a general principle to a personal application. Bildad is saying to Job, Job, if you'll listen to my counsel, this is what this is what'll happen. He, that is God, will fill, will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. This is language of salvation. This is language of deliverance and restoration. He says, Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. And it's rather purposeful that. Bildad has taken Job's last words from his response to Eliphaz and used them to talk about Job's enemies. Job had said, for now I shall lie in the earth, you will seek me, but I shall be no more. Bildad is saying, Job, stop claiming your innocence, pray and be obedient before God, heed the warnings I've given you, and then you will get your just reward of blessing and restoration. And when you do that, your enemies will be reduced in significance and they will be no more. Now, we're, we who are reading this speech must take note of Bildad's use of the word blameless because it takes us back to the beginning of the story where God and the narrator describe Job in this way. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears God and he turns away from evil. This is a reminder that although some of what Bildad saying, is saying is good and helpful, it is nonetheless a failure on his part to see what is really happening because he's blinded by his theology. See, he's speaking past Job because he doesn't see what is actually happening with Job. He's convinced with his theology and Job's must fit into that theology. So his worldview is shaped by this doctrine of retribution, and he cannot conceive of things outside of that. But let's read this general principle again and ask ourselves if it is true. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. Has God ever rejected a blameless man? The answer to that question will reveal whether you really understand the gospel or not. God sent his son into the world to live a sinless or blameless life. He was the lamb of God without spot or blemish. He went to the cross, died in shame. He was rejected by the Father. Jesus was blameless but willing to choose to suffer the punishment that we deserved. 
Is it true that God will not take the hand of evildoers? The answer to that question, again, also reveals whether you really understand the gospel or not. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, not the righteous. Every man, woman, and child is a sinner, not because they sin, but because they all have a sinful nature. Without Christ, we have no hope. Without God's grace reaching down and taking our hand, we are doomed to eternity in hell. The gospel of Jesus Christ turns the doctrine of retribution on its head. It is generally true that you sow goodness, you'll reap blessing. You sow wickedness, you'll reap punishment. But that truth must also be shaped and fashioned by the character of God and the character of his gospel. So we must recognize that sowing goodness does not guarantee earthly, physical blessing. Health, prosperity, security, comfort, and success but it does reap a spiritual blessing of growth in Christ-likeness, insight into God's word, wisdom in this life, and confident hope for our future in heaven. God does at times ordain that those who are his are being faithful to him, suffer hardship, and endure sickness and ridicule, even die for the sake of his glory. But also, sowing wickedness does not demand that we will reap punishment. Suffering trials, sickness, heartache, or tragedy, those are some of the, the fruit of wickedness, but it does certainly reap confusion, struggle, and frustration, but God's grace reaches down into the middle of that sinful mess, grabs those who are his, and sets our feet on solid ground through what his son Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, friends, do you, do you see what's going on here? This, this cold, theoretical theology of Bildad is being pressed on Job when he is blameless. And it says, but you're not Job. Admit it. And he's hammering at him from all different sides. Maybe in your life, you've, you've wondered, am I truly a believer? Because a true believer wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. That's a healthy question. But it's not a healthy theology if you leave it there and you don't think of the grace of God. That if it were not for the grace of God would leave you in despair. Your sinfulness is the very reason why Jesus came. His love and mercy is, is what penetrated that heart that was against him. And so, friends, what we have here through Bildad is the whispering of Satan into the ear of Job to say, go ahead, admit your sinfulness. Admit that you're not worthy when you are actually, in fact, blameless before God. Satan wants to undo the grace that God has already granted you. 
See the challenge there? You talk to people who are questioning whether or not they're truly saved or whether they're actually walking with God. We must be careful. Let me just give you three concluding thoughts. Number one, I think this this text kind of screams at us. I want to mention that be discerning about the presence of bad theology. Even well-intended false teachers can sound convincing at times. Listen to a little bit of Joel Osteen, and you might hear something good in the midst of his distorted view of the gospel, the church, and of Christ. Listen to a little bit of Benny Hinn, and I'm not telling you to go home and do this, right? But listen to a little bit of Benny Hinn, and you'll hear some decent explanations of Scripture at times, along with a horde of distorted interpretations and horrible applications to push along his word-faith gospel. Listen to a little bit of the liberal mainline denominational pastor teach on principles from Scripture, and he will give you stories that are nice, that are true, and applications that, that you know, might be okay until he gets to places where it talks about the blood of Jesus or the mission of the church or the life uh, uh, that begins at conception or that marriage is a holy institution uniting a man and a woman for life before God. Well-intended false teachers can sound convincing at times. Be discerning. Well-intended false teachers sometimes say things that turn out to be right. But that doesn't mean that they should be listened to. Friends, hear this. Everyone listening? When you wake up tomorrow, the sun will be out. I'm a prophet. Now, I'm being facetious. But just because I'm right doesn't mean that I am worth listening to. And sometimes people make statements that turn out to be right. And that is what we have in here. Both Eliphaz and Bildad say, hey, if you do what we are saying, in the end, God will restore. And is that not what happens? See, we should listen to Eliphaz. We should listen to Bildad. Except that God says, no, they were wrong. They weren't prophetic. They were donkeys who spoke, and it just happened that what they spoke ended up being what God determined would happen. Be discerning, friends. Be discerning. Be wise in the application of sound theology. (laughs) I've heard Christians talk about their interactions with unbelievers and believers alike and pride themselves with the fact that they were bold for God in quoting Scripture in the face of opposition. And it's not that their quoting Scripture was wrong or the Scriptures they used were wrong or didn't apply to the situation they did, but it was the way in which that Scripture was quoted that concerned me. It was quoted as if it was the last word in the midst of some kind of an argument. Right? Your co-worker and you get into a conversation about life and religious discussion, and you find out that he is somewhat religious. He went to some liberal church, and and you're talking about your brand of Christianity, and you respond at the end after you've had this kind of heated discussion by saying, well, These are the words of Jesus. This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. 
And then you say, and if that isn't enough, and if any man, man's name was not found written in the book of life, he has thrown into the lake of fire. See you tomorrow. You have not won any brownie points. And part of the reason is because you have maybe quoted something that is true, but in a way that was totally inappropriate for that situation. Now, friends, we've got to be careful. We must be wise in the application of sound theology. There's a time and a place and a way in which it unfolds. And finally, I just want to challenge you with what we've talked about. Be in awe of God's grace theology. Let me just read these verses of Scripture and let them settle into your heart as we close today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We without God are destined for perishing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Smacks against the doctrine of retribution, doesn't it? And then Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2, and I'm gonna read verses one through 10, just to let you see this now with, with the, the lens that we've, we've, we've labored through here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, help us. Help us to see error for what it is. And Lord, sometimes the worst kind of error is the error that is so close to the truth. That's what we have coming out of the lips of Phil Dad today. And Lord, at times we are bombarded with these false teachings, these false theologies that not only are present in the church but are outside in our culture that come and challenge us. But Lord, may we not be captive to them. May we settle in your grace. May we see the fact that we are undeserving sinners, deserving of eternal punishment. But by your grace, we now have new life. And we have 
eternal life because of what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for that. Give us clarity and confidence. We ask now in your name. Amen.